43-year-old Nicole DiCamillo of Pine Top, Arizona has stage 4 cancer, and she feels absolutely the best and happiest she's been in years. Oh, yeah. I, I go to work every day. I have four kids, seven dogs, a husband, and I, you know, you to look at me, you would never know I was sick. We can't wait to share Nicole's story, but first, I just want to say, if my opening statement sounds odd and unexpected, we're just getting started. Today we're going to talk about a lot of really unusual stuff. Everything from collecting radioactive glassware that glows bright green, to eating radioactive eggs to treat the disease, and even cancer patients whose urine is actually radioactive during certain treatments. I've been interviewing patients and medical experts for Banner Health for more than a decade now, and I've encountered so many fascinating details and facts that I never quite seemed able to find a way to share with a public audience. Maybe simply because they were just too strange or some might argue a bit uncomfortable to think about. Well, the stars finally seem to have aligned for the chance to pull back the curtain on a topic that rarely gets much attention in modern culture. That is, other than the big part it plays in the comic book creations of a popular web-swinging superhero and an angry green hulk. We're going to talk about high-dose radiation, and not the fictional kind that gives people superpowers, but the real kind, which patients like Nicole credit for giving them quite a marvelous ability all the same. And that's the power to keep living and to have a great quality of life for many years, even after cancer tried to take that away. This is Banner Health Storytelling Podcast, Bedside Stories, highlighting some of the most compelling experiences that take place behind the scenes in healthcare. Today we bring you episode 17, Weird Science. So I promise not to make this episode about me, Though, I do want to share how it came about. Not long ago, I stumbled across a random news article about collectors who go into antique stores and thrift shops all over the country carrying Geiger counters and black lights, searching for radioactive glassware. It turns out that before World War II, uranium was used for coloring in plates, punch bowls, and glasses before anyone realized its potential for weapons or energy. So now these folks go around asking antique store owners to turn out the lights so they can see if dinner plates and drinking glasses glow bright green when they hit it with a black light. If it does, they've got a new addition to their peculiar collection. No kidding. Just a day or two later, I came across another offbeat article, this time about an interesting woman named Marie Curie, a Nobel Prize winner known as the mother of modern physics. She died from aplastic anemia linked to high levels of exposure to her famous discoveries, radioactive polonium and radium. Here's what stayed with me. Even now, after almost 100 years, many of her personal items, like her clothes and cookbooks, are still radioactive. Her laboratory notebooks are stored in lead-lined boxes in Paris, and experts predict they'll be radioactive for another 1,500 years. Her coffin's even lined with nearly an inch of lead to protect people who come to pay their respects. Those stories got me thinking about how far we've come with radiation, especially in how it's used to help cancer patients. Take the experience of Nicole, who came to Banner MD Anderson Cancer Center in Gilbert, Arizona, to receive four high-dose radiation treatments for rare neuroendocrine tumors. So they hook me up to some stuff, and they come in with this little itty-bitty jar that looks like a salt shaker. And they're like, hey, this is your radiation. At that point, I'm like, are you kidding me? I was so scared for nothing. Like, that's so tiny. They hook me up, and 30 minutes of just sitting there and talking to the radiation folks and having a good time, 
and then it's done. They give me all the the do's and the don'ts, and we stayed a night at a hotel just to make sure, like, I didn't have any side effects, and then I went home. It's been, goodness, what it's 2021. It's been, like, five years. Wow. And I have had no, yep, I have had no new growth. I have been stable ever since then. A lot of my tumors shrank and or dissipated. And um, Dr. Boris Nariv calls me boring now. He's like, you're boring. (laughs) You're doing so great. You're boring. And I, I can tell you that I have allowed them to give my name and number to anybody who's going to go through this treatment because I want to be able to put people at ease if they're scared like I was. And I've had many people call me and I actually made a best friend out of this whole situation. She is actually a patient of Dr. Narayan. And she's like, don't you just love it when Dr. Narayan calls you boring? I said, I do. It's my favorite word. Nicole was part of a research study for a targeted radiation drug called Lutathera, which was later approved by the FDA. That salt shaker looking thing she mentioned basically contained part of an IV treatment, which also included amino acids to help protect her kidneys from radiation. The drug works by binding to a part of the cell, a particular receptor, which then enters the cell and allows radiation to damage the tumor cells. It's this kind of specificity, the ability to directly target only the microscopic part of a cell that feeds cancer, that we keep getting mind-blowingly better and better at doing. Long gone are the days of treatment that harms completely healthy tissue around a cancerous area. And yet, for those of us who aren't medically trained, there's still kind of an underlying weirdness involved in using radiation to get healthy. It's a catch-22. You're using radiation, which we generally identify in popular culture to be bad for you, to fight something growing inside you that is, in these cases, much worse. The great news is that on the flip side, the great folks who are medically trained in this advanced specialty know exactly what they're doing. I'd like you to meet Dr. Susan Pasolacqua, Director of Nuclear Medicine at Banner MD Anderson. She grew up with a father who was a radiologist, and her three brothers are all nuclear medicine technicians. As early as age six, Dr. Pasolacqua remembers hearing all about physics in everyday conversation around the house. I asked her to share any random info that people might be surprised to learn, and she did not disappoint. First, it's worth mentioning, there are many ways to diagnose and treat cancer with radiation. To keep it simple, the most common way to diagnose and monitor the disease is using ionizing radiation. That's through x-rays, CT scans, or fluoroscopy. X-ray beams are directed at the body to create an image. There's also nuclear medicine, which involves injecting, ingesting, or even breathing in radioactive medicine to identify or fight cancer inside the body. Speaking of ingesting, this is where the radioactive egg comes in. So for a gastric emptying study, for patients that have some... um they feel like their stomach doesn't empty or they vomit after a certain amount of time or they feel bloated or distended. And so the gastrointestinologist, your your GI doctor, will order a test where you t- actually eat a breakfast. Either it's a hard-boiled egg mixed with a little bit of uh, technetium 99M sulfur colloid, which is the radio tracer that we see on our camera. And then we take a picture right after you eat the egg 
and then at 30 minutes, and then at one hour, then at two hours and four hours, and we can kind of see where the stomach is. The images are not that pretty, but we can see where the stomach is, and then we can detect how much of it left the stomach at each time point. Wow, so they put the radiation in the egg, Right. And then you eat, and then they cook it, I assume, in the... Yeah, it's uh, like a hard-boiled egg, usually. And then they put the radiation in after it's cooked, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So and you then, don't blow right. the microphone. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> There's also an irradiated gas used in some cases when patients have shortness of breath to help determine if there's a blood clot or some other obstruction in the lungs. It's not like it's a big dose. All of these doses that we do for diagnostic studies, whether it's a bone scan or a, a, a glucose scan, FDG scan for, um, for cancer or even for uh, bone scans, any of them, it's a very low dose of radiation. Um, and if the dose is a little bit higher, all of these radio tracers have a different half-life, meaning they last for a certain amount of time. So we may use a high dose of something, but it only lasts for 56 seconds. So the radiation goes down. It's like a, it's like this ice cube that's just going and, and melting very, very quickly. Sometimes that can be really tough for us because we got to get the patient in and inject them and get the images very fast because you lose... It's, it's like a melting ice cube. Some of them last a, a little bit longer, but if they last longer, then we have the ability to give you a smaller dose. I asked Dr. Pasolacqua to share some of the ways the medical team stays safe while using these radioactive materials. Well, all of the walls in our nuclear medicine department, even the doors, if you were to go there, they're all lead lined. So everything's very, very heavy. Uh, and uh, we've got a hot lab, which is a lead-lined room where all of our radiopharmaceuticals are uh, brought in with security into this room that has a lock on it, and it all sits in there in these lead pegs and lead. There's these blocks, so everything's and that's to that's to keep our te- technologists safe because they're always in there measuring things, injecting them. They even wear rings on their finger because if they're injecting 12 patients a day, they want to make sure that the dose to their hand is not so high. Those rings, along with badges the technicians wear on their chest, help to warn if their radiation exposure is approaching a level of concern. This gives them plenty of time to take additional precautions to protect themselves and others. I want to move away from nuclear medicine for a minute to talk about radiation oncology, which is different from Nicole's treatment. Banner MD Anderson uses radiation therapy that focuses on the outside of the body, known as external beam radiation, in which a machine precisely aims high energy rays into the tumor. Experts do this at several locations throughout Arizona and in Colorado, performing treatments in heavily shielded units, which the medical team lovingly call vaults. That's almost as cool as the machines located within them, known as linear accelerators. Picture a bank vault, but one designed to contain radiation instead of just holding money. Each of these giant vaults must be the first thing built at the cancer centers, and then the rest of the facility is constructed around them. Each vault's massive door weighs two tons and is more than one foot thick. Radiation therapists oversee the treatments from a small room outside of each vault, using a variety of monitors and software. One day I noticed something about the monitor screens that show the live feed from cameras in the vault. Most are missing at least a few pixels, sometimes giving the screen sort of an old school, almost 1980s look. 
That's because the radiation in the vault affects the cameras in there, burning out their pixels over time. The same thing happens to a lot of cameras on the International Space Station from the radiation in space. Now let's get back to the topic of nuclear medicine. Since patients who receive some nuclear medicine treatments will temporarily emit radiation, they're given instructions you don't hear every day. They are instructed to go straight home and go into a room, spend whether it's 48 hours, depending on the dose, to, uh, you know, four or five days in a room by themselves with their own bathroom. They can be at home, but they're not to be exposed to any pregnant women and young, um, you know, people, you know, 17 or younger because that's our at-risk population. They have to understand that it's all time and distance. Even after they're released and they can leave that room, you don't want to have, you know, a young baby on your lap for an hour. The other thing is, is with the I-131, it's excreted. It goes mostly to if there's any cancer in their neck or anywhere else, but then it gets excreted in the urine and it also comes out in sweat and saliva. So those are the things that you're careful with. You flush the toilet twice, you make sure that you sit down when you go to the bathroom, things like that so you don't leave any contamination um, as you're waiting there to be released out of your room. This is not to scare people, but if somebody was to take a high dose of I-131 that they ate and they vomit, it causes a little radiation spill and we have to go in there and and clean it up for them and make sure that the area is closed off for a certain amount of time because it can go into something that's porous or something and be very, very hard to, to, uh, to clean up. These patients have to be careful to sit far away from their driver when catching a ride home, too. They usually sit in the very back seat on the passenger side to leave as much room as possible. Hopefully it's not a three-hour ride, but, you know, we do have patients that have a long way to go, and if they do have a long way to go and we're a little bit concerned about, you know, the safety to their family or themselves, they can stay at the hospital. In some cases, patients may no longer be radioactive enough to be harmful to others, yet still emit low levels that will set off scanners at TSA airport screenings or Border Patrol checkpoints. Doctors write an official letter that patients can show if they're traveling. I asked Nicole what was it like overall going through treatments that required so many cautionary measures. Was it scary or did you feel a lot more comfortable once you realized that it wasn't going to be as bad as you thought it would be? Yeah, it wasn't scary at all after um, the first dose. After the first time I did it, it was I mean, everybody in the in the banner community that was in that situation with me made it just so easy to be there. So, like, you just felt so loved and so welcome that I felt like every time I went in for a treatment, I was, like, just with my family every single time. And I still feel that way. I still feel like Dr. Apostolacqua is, like, one of my best friends. And Dr. Narive is, you know, that, like that dad figure of you do this, you don't do that, but you still love them to death. And a lot of the, the gals that helped with the radiation, I'm friends with them now. We like, you know, they're always checking on me. They're always excited when I come down there. They're like, hey, let's go to lunch. And actually, I just, I love just going there anymore, just seeing all my, all my friends now. It's worth noting, Nicole's kind of cancer technically doesn't go into remission. That's why she's still considered to be in stage four of the disease, even though she's been doing great for the past few years. She only needs six-month checkups now, and 
these days, she focuses her energy on the positive milestones in life. When she learned she had life-threatening cancer, Nicole set a goal to fight the disease and one day see her sons graduate. One will be a sophomore this school year, and another will walk across the stage to accept his high school diploma next year. You hear radiation years, like, why would I put that in my body? You know, I'm, I'm a person who eats healthy. I'm, I'm a person who, you know, does what I can to be who I am. And then I'm like, yeah, go ahead and put that chemical in my body. But at the same time, it's, it, I could keep eating healthy. I can keep working out. I can keep doing everything I can to be healthy, but I'm never going to be healthy. And then here's this chemical that you put in me, and it's going to make me way healthier than I am right now. So in my eyes, I can choose to fight the healthy way and, and know that I'm not going to win, or I can keep being the healthy way with a little bit of a push and be where I am today. And that's, what, that's the decision I had to come to, and I'd rather be here today to watch my family grow and to watch, um, I don't know, maybe I'll make it to 50 years with my husband. I can't wait for that. That's a big goal for mine. But I can see my goals now. Before Ludothera, I couldn't see my life. I, it was day by day. Now I can see like, oh, in five years, my parents are going to hit their 50th, and I can't wait for that. I'm, I'm going to take them to Hawaii. We're going to have a great time. You know, I have goals now. I can, I'm going to see my, my, my son graduate. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to do things. For Banner Health, I'm Corey Schubert, and this is Bedside Stories. If you like this episode or any of our past episodes, we invite you to click on that subscribe button for this podcast. You can also check out all of our previous episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Production support for this episode was provided by Eric Joel LaFuente, Sean Logan, and Nancy Neff. For more information about Banner Health, visit us online at bannerhealth.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.